I think he said earlier that in India alone, one country, they have a need for 400,000 Bibles a year, and they don't have the opportunity to supply it unless we help. And so that's one country. And you think about 400,000 Bibles, that's a ton of Bibles. Well, the truth is, when we hear something like this, we all love a, a good story. You know, I remember my, um, my parents liked to get rid of me as much as they could over the summer, so I'd spend a week with one set of grandparents and a week with the other set of grandparents. I don't know if my grandparents knew what the deal was that they were getting, but my mom and dad were getting a little free time. And so I loved it because I would go, and both of my grandfathers were wonderful storytellers, whether it was, you know, exploits in World War II or uh, working in the plant um, or just <laughs> the corny jokes that grandpas can tell, and they're perfect. I mean, they're like, but ah, oh, that's great. I, I, I could tell them, and you'd be like, really? Uh, but your grandpa tells it, and it's, it's awesome. Because there's something, I guess, that happens when you get older. You just become a better storyteller. Maybe you've seen a little more life, and you have the opportunity to do that. Um, here's what happens for us in our transition through the Gospel of Matthew. When we get to <coughs> chapter 13, uh, Jesus starts teaching in parables. Now, uh, you, you are familiar with, there are parables that you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. But we're 13 chapters, we're almost halfway done with the Gospel of Matthew. We haven't had many parables yet, have we? There have not been a lot of parables that we've had the opportunity to. And so Matthew 13 is referred to in academic terms as the parabolic discourse. That sounds a little bit too much like math and makes me start breaking out in hives. Basically, what it means is that the entire chapter of Matthew 13 is a whole collection of parables put together. So there are five major sermons that Jesus preaches. Chapter 13 is the third of five. Uh, We've seen the other two uh, previously, and we'll see the other two uh, working along. And so this morning, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, we invite you to steal the one that's in the pew in front of you. Um, Well, it'll be page 727 in your pew Bible. That should put you right about Matthew 13. And we're going to look at a um, well-loved parable that I think you may have heard before. Jesus, through the course of chapter 13, tells eight parables. He tells eight of them to the crowds. And then he pulls his disciples back and he tells eight of, uh, four of them privately to his disciples. After chapter 12, which we finished last week, Je- Jesus never again preaches specifically to the scribes and the Pharisees. They've already reckoned in their hearts that they're going to kill him. It's going to take them a year to get there. Uh, but they, they, they're, they've decided what they're going to do. So now Jesus is kind of pulled back in his teaching ministry. And so look with me at verses 1 through 3 of Matthew chapter 13. You'll see it on the screen, or you can follow along in your own copy of the Scriptures. It says, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down, while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables. We see the setting of the story. Uh, Jesus is uh, uh, withdrawn to the north uh, on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And while the Jewish religious leaders really don't have a whole lot that they want to do with Jesus, Jesus is still immensely popular with the crowds. And so while the scribes and the Pharisees are not following him, Jesus leaves the house. Was he heading to Walmart, you know, checking out the new Walmart that's opening on Wednesday? What was he doing? It doesn't say that he was going out necessarily. The teachers said he left the house that day. And as he goes, he has a following. And so there's these great crowds that are following Jesus, and he starts to teach. And then as they kind of press in upon him, he starts backing up, and then he realizes that his sandals are getting wet because he's right on the the side of the seashore. And so the Sea of Galilee is a large freshwater lake. 
<clears throat> he gets into a boat, has the boat back up, and he preaches. And the, where they believe that this happened, there's a, just a great little cove where people can kind of line up like a natural amphitheater. And when you back off, the refractory uh, properties of the water just cause his voice to be amplified naturally with no sound system. It's pretty amazing to think about. And it says that Jesus taught them many things in parables. You're going to see that. There's eight of them that we're going to look at just in Matthew 13 alone. But it begs the question, what is a parable? Um, A parable is not Aesop's fables. It's not a short story. Um, It's not necessarily a Pulitzer Prize winning piece of composition. What is a parable? Well, that's important because we're going to look at a lot of them. There's a lot of definitions out there, but I think perhaps the best and simplest is this. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It is a um, comparison that is intentionally set up where you take one thing and you set it beside another for the purpose of contrast, and it's usually a very physical thing. It's an earthly thing, but it's the purpose of the comparison is then to drive home a particular spiritual point. Now, one of the things you've got to be careful about um, in the uh, medieval times... <clears throat> Preachers and Bible commentators would kind of spiritualize the, um, the parables and make it mean like 50 different things. Well, this means this, and this means, you know, like the Roman Catholic Church, and this means that... No. Parables, generally speaking, have one main point. And then there may be other details. And so what's the point? Well, we're going to get to that as we get to the end and we talk about this. So we, we've looked at what a parable is. <clears throat> Let's see what the parable says, beginning in verse 3. Jesus said, consider the sower who went out to sow. By the way, guys, that's S-O-W, not S-E-W. He's not working with fabrics, Troy Reeves. Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he was sowing, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on rocky ground where there wasn't much soil, and they sprang up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered. Others fell among thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them, and still others fell on good ground and produced a crop, some 100-fold, some 60-fold, and some 30 times what was sown. Anyone who has ears should listen. So Jesus got a big crowd, back in the boat, natural amplification. Jesus can tell them anything that he wants, and he tells this story. There's a guy that goes out to sail, some of the seed didn't fall in the right place. Some of the seed did fall in the pl- right place. And some of the seed, men just had this astronomical return. Y'all better pay attention. And the disciples go, you're the son of a carpenter. We're a bunch of fishermen. None of us farm. You can tell any, everybody anything that you want, and you told them an agricultural tale. What in the world is the point? Well, <clears throat> they asked that very question, verse 10. It says, when he had said this, the disciples came up to him and said, uh, why are you speaking parables? What's the point? What, what, what is it, the thing that they're supposed to hear? And in verses 11 through 17, Jesus explains why he teaches in parables. And I will kind of give a little warning to listen really carefully. Um, Matthew chapter 13, verses 11 through 17, is a contentious passage. Because there is some truth here that um, in a world that seeks to exalt self and be the king of our own lives. I was just wondering, you're going to hear some things that you don't, you don't want to hear. Um, 
Now, the, the challenge is to take really deep stuff and try to make it understandable in like five minutes. And so I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to stick as close to the word here as I give you kind of what I think this passage is talking about. And I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then I'll go back and I'll make three points on verses 11 through 17. <clears throat> so the disciples come up and said, why do you speak them in parables? And he answered them, because the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. For this reason, I speak to them in parables, because looking they do not see, and hearing they do not listen or understand. The prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in them, which says, you will listen and listen, yet never understand. You will look and look, yet never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing, and they have shut their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn back, and I would cure them. But your eyes are blessed because they do see, and your ears because they do hear. For I assure you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but did not see them. To hear the things that you hear, yet did not hear them. I think there are three reasons why Jesus is taught in parables. And the first is that Jesus uses parables to explain the mystery of history. Jesus uses parables to explain the mystery of history. Here's the thing. Most of the Jewish religious leaders thought that um, the kingdom of heaven was something that was far off in the distant future. And Jesus says, "Um, no, it's right now. And I'm the king. They've gotten history wrong. They're like, "Um, no, 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 Jesus, hold it. I think there's supposed to be like a white horse and a sword and like armies of angels and you sitting on a throne. Wait, that's his second coming. They had no category for his first coming. They expected Jesus' coming to be gloriously public where every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. That will happen. But his first coming was almost in secret, shrouded in mystery that the God that created all of the universe would come in the form of a baby. And that there's no throne for Jesus to sit upon and reign as king except for the hearts of the people that choose to follow him. Jesus' kingdom was not what religious people had expected. And so Jesus is trying to explain to them what the mystery is. The mystery is not, you know, some Deepak Chopra, you know, learn how to cross your legs and go, ah. The mystery is that God came to serve man by being incarnated like us that he could die for us that's the mystery and they don't get that because they want jesus to come and kick tail right now they want the second coming they don't want the first coming so his purpose in using the parables is to explain this the jews did not expect a partial and preliminary beachhead they expected the full and final apocalyptic vision and when jesus didn't meet that expectation They said, you can't be who you say you are because you didn't come the right way. You didn't check the boxes, dot the I's, cross the T's. Another thing that I think this passage clearly says, I don't think it's true. Jesus uses parables both to reveal and to conceal truth. Did you see that? He said to the disciples, to you it has been given to understand the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it hadn't been given. He says something that is really provocative 
He says, if you believe the mystery, truth reveals more truth to you. But if you refuse to believe the obvious, then that same truth is just like a story. What do you think people did with Jesus' story of this verses 3 through 9? He's telling farming stories. What in the world does that have to do? And Jesus steps back with his disciples and says, let me tell you what the story means. And for the disciples who had believed the mystery of God's incarnation, of God's first coming that will consummate in a second coming, truth reveals more truth to them. But for those who had rejected the obvious, that God was definitely up to something, what have you seen? The lame walk, the blind see, people's sins are forgiven, people are restored from the dead. Obviously, God is up to something. And the religious leaders knew that it was something supernatural. They just attributed it to the devil instead of to the work of God. Why jump to that conclusion? Well, because God was using parables to both reveal and conceal. The third one, and the one that perhaps is even the most controversial, these first two points kind of leading up to it, is that Jesus uses parables to teach timeless truth. Now, I had a quarter, and it must have fallen out of my Bible when I was walking up here. Does anybody even carry loose change on them anymore? It didn't fall up here, so I don't know where it went. I had to, like, ask, like, ten people to find a quarter here this morning. You got a quarter, Rob? Thank you. Awesome. This is just a cheap little sermon illustration here, but it will work. Um, If you think you're going to see that back, think again. (laughs) Gumball machine, Kylie Dean. It works. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that he's using parables to teach timeless truth. And boy, listen, this is a controversial issue, and I think most people get it wrong. Because I think um, the the challenge is when you're driving, there's a ditch on either side of the road. You don't want to be in either ditch. You don't want to go too far. You want to stay on the asphalt. You want to stay on the pavement. And really what he's saying in this whole conversation about revealing and concealing, he's talking about the sovereignty of God. And from God's perspective, people's response to the gospel is a matter of election. From God's perspective. From man's perspective, it's an issue of free will choice. And so here's, here's an illustration of this. You, is this an American quarter? <laughs> oh, okay, it is. It's one of those new quarters. I'm like, what in the world is that? New Mexico? All right, here's the illustration. If I hold this up to you, face forward, and this is all that you ever see of a quarter, what do you think a quarter is? It's silver, it's round, and it's got George Washington's head on it. Okay, and I go, no, 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 no. Um, Actually, I don't know what this is on the other side. It's upside down. It's uh, New Mexico. It's one of the state quarters. Now, I didn't know this, but like on a normal quarter with the eagle on the back, the eagle's upside down if the head is facing you the right way. They're kind of... And I go, no, 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 no. You guys got it all wrong. You you got the silver and the round part right, but it's an eagle on the back. You go, no, 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 no. Round and silver, there's a head on the front. Who's right? You guys are. No, no. Um, Who's right? We both are, and it becomes a matter of our perspective. Now, here's my concern, okay? When we talk about the sovereignty of God and salvation, everybody kind of gets their, um, their, their theological underpants start riding up on them a little bit. They get all, mm, 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 let's not talk about that. But yet, we believe by faith that God created the world with a word. We believe that. He's absolutely sovereign. He did what he wanted with the world. If, if the earth was all various shades of brown from space instead of beautiful greens and blues and whites, he could have done that. Boom, he could have done that. Yet when we talk about our salvation, we want to be so self-sovereign that we choke out God from having any role to play in our salvation. 
Yes, that's not right. It's kind of like this. From one perspective, absolutely, God is sovereign. From another perspective, we're not robots. I mean, he didn't, he obviously didn't pick up my clothes this morning. You know, I, I did that. The best illustration that I've heard of this, when we talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, because the Bible clearly affirms both. So I'm not saying pick one, pick, pick and choose. I'm saying I think if you're going to be biblical, you've got to hold on to both of them. I think it was Adrian Rogers who said it this way, that when you talk about your salvation, it kind of looks like a doorway, that when you are heading to the doorway in this life, the sign above the door says, I have chosen. And you go through. When you get through on the other side and you look back, there's another sign on the door that you can't see till you get on the other side that says, you have been chosen. Is God strong enough that his sovereignty and our human responsibility can work together in a way that we don't understand? Listen, I don't like math. There's a lot of things I don't understand. Absolutely he can do this. Now, it's a mystery. But to, to, to go, you know what? No, it's all about what I do. I, I think you run the danger of, of ceasing to be biblical at that point. But if you so elevate God's sovereignty to minimize human responsibility, you cease to be biblical as well. Now, God is God, and we have to let him be that. And if that offends you, let me just say, I want to stay as firmly on the Scripture as possible so that the offense is with the Scripture, not with me. I think that's what the Bible teaches. That God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is an issue of compatibility, not combatism. It's not something to fight over. They're opposite sides of the same coin. And so Jesus uses a parable to talk about why is it if I talk to Brittany about the gospel and I talk to Amanda about the gospel, Amanda repents and believes and Brittany doesn't. Because that's what he's getting to with his parable of the soils when he explains it. Well, let's see how he continues the explanation. Rob, thanks for the quarter. <clears throat> Jesus explains the parable in verses 18 through 23, and here's what he says. You then listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the rocky path. So Jesus is now changing the illustration. It is no longer about farming. It is about the kingdom of heaven. And it's about how people respond to the message of the gospel. The sower is who? Ultimately, it's Jesus. It's the faithful sower. But the sower is also anyone who spreads the seed of the word faithfully. So, I would be a sower. A missionary would be a sower. You can be a sower. The question is, do you have the seed? Do you have the word? What is the seed? It is the message of the gospel. It's the scriptures. It's the Bible. It's God's message. And um, the soil is the hearts of men. So, Jesus is starting to make the explanation of this parable clear. And he talks about the first guy. He says, it's somebody who hears the word but doesn't understand it, and then the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown along the path. Verse 20. And the one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but is short-lived. When pressure or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he stumbles. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word, who does bear fruit and yields some 100, some 60, and some 30 times what was sown. 
What's the only variable in the story? I mean, the sower is consistent. The seed is consistent. What's the only variable? It's the soil. Okay? Now, here's the trick question. Outside of the sower and the seed, what's the only thing that is consistent among all four of their soils? What have they all experienced? They have all been sown. One of the things that's great, I use this as an illustration, and Ed ducked out. Ed and David and I had the opportunity to go to India. We're teaching the Bible and sitting there. And I think it was Ed that made the comment. said, hey, look, sow or sowing. And the guy's out there, he's got a sling bag kind of over him, big old bag of seed. And he reaches in and he just slings it. Slings it. And it's not like the guy in Vietnam in the rice paddy who is planting. Planting, planting. This guy is just broadcasting, spreading it, spreading it, spreading it. Here's the point. All four soils receive the seed. What's the seed? What's, what's the seed? It's the word, okay? So are these Christians or non-Christians? Are these professed Christians? These are all people who have heard the word. So these are not the millions of people in India that Louis goes to to distribute Bibles for the Gideons. We know that they're lost. But Jesus is saying how you respond to the word really determines if you have any spiritual vitality in you at all. And Jesus says really clearly, there's only one response that is right. Three of the examples that he gives are negative. He's not saying, hey, shoot for the first three. That's what you're shooting for. He's saying you want to be the good field. And so I think that all four of these people are professing Christians. Yeah, I, I, I heard the word. Yeah, I walked the aisle. Yeah, I shook the preacher's hand. But we know that the effect of hearing the gospel is dependent upon the condition of the soil of a person's heart. And so you see what happens here. The path. This is a, a piece of ground that has been tamped down because of people walking upon it. It's hard and it's unresponsive. And the seed, while it's thrown, kind of sits on the upper crust and never penetrates into the ground and never bears any fruit. That's the heart that kind of, you know, you hear, you hear the story, wives, you talk about your husbands this way. In, oh, oh you, so husbands, I think some of you may have heard that before. That's that kind of here. It's a person who goes to church, and then the proclamation of the word, personal time of the word, has nothing to do with how they live. It's like the birds come down, they descend, and they eat up whatever seed is sitting on the crust of your life, and it never changes you. I think if Jesus was using kind of everyday vernacular, he'd say, there is no way in the bad place that that person is a believer. No way. But then you've got the rocky ground. And what happens with the rocky ground? The rocky ground is rocky. It's got just a little bit of soil. And so you see almost new life immediately. But it's fake because it's temporary. And it says that it sprouts up and it's, oh, yeah, superficial, very impulsive. Don't leave me out. I want it to. And then the minute the sun comes out, which what should the sun do to a plant? It should nourish it. The thing that nourishes it kills it because it has no root. And listen, I think one of the dangers here is there are people that can come, come, come forward at the end of a service and say that they're going to give their heart to Jesus and weep tears and their hearts be unchanged. It does not matter how emotional you are. An emotional and enthusiastic response is never a guarantee of a converted heart. I mean, the Bible says our hearts are wicked. And that we can think we're being sincere, and then tomorrow go back to living just the way that we were. Rocky ground. The true test of faith is loyalty over the long term. 
not temporary excitement. Because I'll tell you this, man, accepting Jesus is a lot more fun than following Jesus. Yeah, I accepted Jesus in 99. You know, all the angels in heaven are rejoicing. They're having a party for me, yo. My name written on the pearly gates. Hey, he repented and believed. But you know, following Jesus means dying to myself every day, picking up my cross and following him. So which sounds more attractive to you? Accepting Jesus or following Jesus? And Jesus is just being extraordinarily blunt with this parable to say, there are different ways that people respond to the gospel. There's the thorny ground, where again, it starts to grow up. Verse 22, uh, but they hear the word, they start to grow, but the worries of this age and the seduction of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. This is the one that worries me the most about people. Is here you have um, something that is grown. Looking for an illustration here. Something that is grown. I don't know if this is plugged in or not. Um, you have your little fruit that is grown. And then over a period of time, like a snake curling around it, you have this thorn that grows up until it gets here and then it gets you. It chokes you out. And it kills the seed. And there's nothing to show from a person's followership of Jesus. And the problem is that the things of this world, we allow them to kind of grow in our life. We allow weeds to grow in our life without trimming them. And we don't realize it until it's too late. Listen, you grab that plant when it's a little bitty weed before it's gotten thick and perhaps calloused and the thorns have come up to make you not touch it. Why do you think weeds have thorns? It's defense mechanisms so they can continue to live. And, and that's a danger. They say there are people who hear it, but their heart is so preoccupied. They're trying to keep up with the worries of this world, and they're trying to keep up with the, uh, the allure of riches, and they forget to keep the main thing the main thing. And they end up bearing no fruit. They end up proving that they were never really following Jesus in the first place because their God was their appetite for fame or for fortune and not the God of the universe. Gratefully, Jesus throws a good example in there. Now, a five-fold to 15-fold return on your planting would be considered extraordinary. That's good. But to have 30, 60, or 100-fold, Jesus is teaching, here, teaching us here something that's important, and he's been doing this all throughout. And it's that the gospel does meet many different responses. The gospel meets many different responses. Not, not every person that gets a Gideon Bible is a success story. It just doesn't happen that way. Now listen, Louis, if we could work something out that that would happen, contributions would go up quite a bit, wouldn't it? I mean, listen, if there's a one-to-one correlation for every Bible you buy, someone will be saved. Listen, empty out your pocketbooks to now. We're going to pass the plate five times. I mean, we're going we're gonna to do something. If we know it's going to happen, it doesn't happen that way because we're not robots. There's, there's stuff that's got to happen here. And so I sit there and I read this and I go, oh, Jesus, you're teaching your disciples about evangelism and the importance of this. And you use three negative, 75%, and only 25% is good. And that's not the point at all. The point that he's trying to get at is what kind of soil are you? Before we talk about you sharing with anybody else, let's make sure you're not rocky, thorny, or hardened ground. He's not even getting to the point of evangelism yet, because if you're going to give seed, what do you need to have? Seed. The word needs to find its place in your life and grow up. And what does a wise farmer do? He harvests the harvest, but he always keeps a portion of it back to plant for next year. Because the seed does something really incredible. It replaces itself. 
So you don't just eat once. You don't just have one harvest, you have a harvest next year. And then a bigger harvest, and then a bigger harvest, and a bigger harvest. So do you have seed to give to someone else? Before we even worry about someone else, you've got to have the seed for yourself. Because he says not only does the gospel meet many different responses, but we have to remember the forces that stand in opposition to God and his word. Did you notice the things that were like, um, for lack of a better term, the kind of forces of evil in the parable? It's birds. It's sun. It's thorns. All naturally occurring things in the course of our story about agriculture. Birds, you got to deal with birds. Sun, you need the sun. Thorns, you got to work with thorns. I think what he's saying here is that even natural things, even good things, can be destructive things if you don't prune your garden. If you do not take care, it will mess you up. And the birds, the thorns, and the sunshine represent the persecutions, the seductions, and the distractions of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You don't pay attention to what you watch, it can mess you up. You don't pay attention to what you hear, you don't pay attention to what you value, it can mess you up. And so of all of these responses that are pictured, only one is desired. All the soils had the word put on them, but only one responded properly. And it points us to the conclusion that possession is to be more prized than profession. You can claim to be whatever you want. Hey, congratulations, I'm glad to meet the king of France. I mean, you're the king of France, you know. Um, To possess something, you don't have to boast of your profession if you actually possess it. Why? Because people see fruit in your life. They see seed. They see things that are happening. And so how do you know if you possess the thing that you say you have? You bear fruit. You look at your life two years ago, three years ago, five years ago, and you go, wow, I'm, I'm a different person. And I'm different in a good way, not different in a weird way. I'm different in a good way. I used to cuss like a sailor. And you know what? God's cleaned my language up. Listen, that's not the end-all, be-all of sanctification, but it's, it's part of the picture, isn't it? I was a jerk when I first got married. I was, I was, I was too young and unwise. And you know what? God's, God's turned me into a, a gentler, kinder husband. You know, I was so driven about the bottom line, about making money. And now I want money so that I can, I can bless people and be generous with it. You start to see fruit. <clears throat> and one of the things that's good is Jesus in his example says that there's all kinds of different kinds of fruitfulness. Some 30, some 60, some 100. Be happy with what God gives you. It's, and he's not saying, all right, all you 30 people gang up against the 100 people, you know, because you're jealous. It's just saying God, God endows people with different personalities and different gifts. But I think one of the things that he's focusing on here is that the fruitfulness of the minority will make us forget about the fruitlessness of the majority. Three soils were bad and they bore no fruit, but you've got one piece of property that bears 30, 60, 100 fold. They've done more than sustain themselves. They've replaced those fields that were no good. The fruitfulness of the minority will make us forget about the fruitlessness of the majority. That seed may be little, but it's chock full of power. And so my encouragement to you this morning, if you've got rebellious kids, sow the word. You know, what parent has the power to change their, their kid's heart? You don't have the power to do that. You have the power to force... Um, Outward compliance until they're big enough to beat you up. That's long and short of it. 
You know, there comes a point when your kid doesn't have to listen to you anymore. How do you change their hearts that they want to obey? You sow the word. What do you do if you're in a spiritually mixed marriage where you love the Lord and your spouse doesn't? You sow the word. What do you do if you're in a work situation, which, honestly, you should be grateful that you've got a job. What do you do if you're in a tough situation? You're struggling with your relationships at work. You sow the word. The scandal of unchristian Christians is not proof against Jesus. It's proof for him. You have to have an actual thing for there to be a cheap imitation. And the fact that there are people that profess but bear no fruit doesn't mean that the message isn't true. It just means you haven't looked in the right place just yet. So Jesus concludes with three really simple but I think powerful um, admonitions for us. And if you look at verse 9, verse 18, and verse 23, you'll see a refrain that Jesus has used all throughout this parable that you probably haven't caught. In verse 9, he says, Anyone who has ears... You should listen. Um, That would be all of you. You should listen. Verse 18. He says, You then, to his disciples, listen to the parable of the sower. Verse 23. But the one sown on the good ground, this is the one who hears and understands the word and bears fruit and yields a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown thing that he's teaching us, firstly, is that we have a responsibility to eagerly hear and respond to the word. You can't just come to church and hear it and then walk away and be unchanged by it. You have to hear it and respond to it because you will be accountable for it. You know, we, we could do this. Like right now, in my own feeble nature and attempt, from Melissa Guffey in the back corner over there to Drew over here, um, to Corey... Um, to the Bennetts, the word is going out. And it's, it's falling upon the ground of your life in some way, shape, or form. And, and what it actually bears, fruit, it's, it's not that the seed is powerless. It's the spiritual dullness that's in our life that keeps the seed from doing what it's supposed to do. So even at this very moment, there's an accountability for the things that you are hearing that you are either moving forward in your obedience or moving backwards in disobedience we have a responsibility to eagerly hear and respond to the word number two we have the privilege of joining the mission of patient sowing we have the privilege of joining the mission of patient sowing we are to spread the seed that has borne fruit in our life in order to see it bear fruit in others the whole purpose of the christian life it was for, if it was for if the purpose of the christian life was for you to be saved then the minute you pray the prayer, Scotty would beam you up. God has a mission for you. And that's why you don't get beamed up the minute you are saved. There are things for you to do. And so join the mission. Sow the word. I love it. In verse 16 and 17, Jesus says, Oh, disciples, listen. You are so blessed because every prophet and every righteous person long to see the things that you see and hear the things that you hear. Well, think about this. Okay, what did the disciples see? Bits and pieces. There, there is no disciple that saw it like twenty four seven all thirty three years of Jesus's life. We actually, through this, know more about Jesus than the disciples did. They didn't know his birth story. I mean, it, Matthew is collecting all of this years after the fact. We have the A to Z on Jesus. We have everything that there is to know about Jesus. 
in the pages of the New Testament. We know more than the disciples did. We just practice it way less. They knew less and practiced more. We know more and practice less. So join in the mission of sowing. Be grateful that that God in his sovereignty has so worked on your will that you wanted Jesus. That when the seed fell onto your heart, it penetrated, it was um, nurtured, and then it bore fruit in your life. Guys, you should be grateful for that. And your gratitude should propel you to mission and to ministry. That's what he says. Third and finally, we have a victorious promise of an amazing harvest. Guys, listen, the power's not in us. I would be a terrible salesperson. Um, That's just not how I'm cut out, you know? But I am so grateful to know that the hope for ministry is not in a personality or a program or a um, methodology. The power is in the seed. The power is in the word. And we just have to learn to tap into that because the seed has the power in itself and God has indeed promised us that his seed will bear fruit. The only question is whether it is bearing fruit in your life or not. Let's pray. God, we covered a lot of territory here this morning. And just looking at this one simple story, I pray that you have found us faithful in our interpretation of what this means and that you have found us passionate in its application. God, it is a sin to just listen with no intention to obey. So I pray right now that you will change our hearts, that you will make us make us good ground. Help us to be fruitful for you uh, because you deserve our fruitfulness, God. It, it should be the reward of your sacrifice for us and it should be a passion for us to be able to give back to the God that has so richly blessed us. And so God, today, this morning, there may be people that go, I, I, don't, I don't know if the seed has bore fruit in my life. I, I don't see fruit in my life. God, I pray for that person that there'd be an opportunity for them to speak with myself, a staff member, another Christian that cares for them, and to really help them to examine their life according to your word. God, if today was the day of salvation for a person who came to the end of themselves and said, yes, God, I don't want to be the hard path anymore. God, you're in the process of breaking up hard ground, and you alone can do that. So we pray today that your word will have its way among us and that you'll be glorified as you uh, continue to uh, fix us for your glory. In Jesus' name.